China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS. And this week, I'm joined by Sui-Shang Zhao, Professor and Director of the Center for U.S.-China Cooperation at the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. Today, we'll be discussing his recent paper, Top-Level Design and Enlarged Diplomacy, Foreign and Security Policymaking in Xi Jinping's China, which was just published by the Journal of Contemporary China. Sui-Shang, thanks for joining the podcast. My pleasure to be with you. Uh, I norm- normally ask guests for how they got on their relatively narrow research trajectory, but with you, it's a much broader question because you have been writing and thinking about China in a very comprehensive way for decades. You've written excellent books and written ex- excellent articles on domestic politics, foreign policy, nationalism. So let me ask you just a broader question of how did you become interested in studying China full-time, studying its domestic system, its political system, its international behavior? Where did that interest first emerge? In fact, I came to the States uh, in 1985 to study uh, under Professor Susan Shirk. Her fields were at that time mostly domestic economic reforms. So my interest started from on those domestic issues. And in her book, Political Dynamics Economic Reform, that was a very interesting research. In, and uh, I became very interested in those issues. Uh, from there, I developed interest in the policymaking in China. In fact, I worked with uh, Carol Hammering at that time, she was State Department. We published a book on the policymaking in Deng Xiaoping's China. And that's how I got into the policymaking uh, issues of uh, China. Then from uh, policymaking in the uh, mostly in domestic arena, I gradually moved to foreign policy issues uh, and find uh, the joint uh, uh, juncture point uh, issues of nationalism. I wrote that book and published uh, 2004. That was a while ago, and uh, then my interest has been. Uh, mostly on both domestic politics and foreign policy, and moved on in the last uh, several years. I'm very interested in leadership politics and uh, policy making, especially foreign policy making in China. That's how this article was written. In fact, this subject uh, has been a part of a larger project I just completed, which is a book project to be published by the Stanford University Press. The book title is uh, uh, the dragon draws back the uh, transformational leaders and the dynamics of Chinese foreign policy. So the foreign policy making mechanisms uh, and process uh, intuitions, uh, especially individual leaders in the policy making process, is a part of that project. Can I ask when that book is coming out, Sui Sheng? It's in the process of a production. It takes forever, in fact. <laughs> I, the publication date for the book will be early next year, spring 2023. It will be just in time to help us understand the 20th Party Congress period, uh, which will yeah. occur just a few months before. Basically, I focus on the leadership of uh, Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping, and Xi Jinping, how their personalities, policy preferences, and the leadership style regions transformed Chinese foreign policy. 
the paper you've written is a really great overview of how decision-making and, and processes of decision-making and foreign policy have changed under Xi Jinping and the mechanisms by which Xi Jinping has been able to reshape policymaking in these areas. One of the phrases that comes up a lot in the paper is consolidation of power. And in fact, I think you could read dozens and dozens of articles on Xi Jinping where we would talk about the consolidation of power of being a defining characteristic of his leadership and his time in office. And this may be something of a stupid question, but I wanted to ask if you could define or unpack what does that actually mean to consolidate power? Is this an indication that a leader is in more effective control of bureaucratic organizations? Does this mean that a leader has his decisions followed and obeyed with more regularity? What does it actually mean in your definition to say that Xi Jinping has, quote, consolidated power? What I mean is, uh, as a leader, he has established his personal authority, not only have institutional support, but more importantly, he has established himself as an unchangeable leader in the Chinese political system, just like Mao Zedong, all starting to that matter in, in the Soviet Union and through purges, through institutional reconstruction, and uh, through many other means to make themselves feared, not loved by their colleagues. And nobody in this uh, circle, in a, in a circle, he does not simply does not have a kind of uh, challenges. So all, anyone could at this moment to challenge his decisions. It, his decisions may not be implemented well, but as an individual leader, he established himself as a, a strong man, and has his orders, uh, everyone around him, just uh, be yes, uh, Mr. Yes people. So in that case, he consolidated his authority, his power in the leadership. That's what I mean is that some people talk about institutionalization, or he established those institutions, those are instruments. But more important is uh, his personal authority here uh, has been established. Can you distinguish this from the previous leaders before Xi Jinping, maybe starting with Deng and then moving to Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, what was different about how those three leaders handled diplomatic affairs and, and foreign policy? Those leaders uh, respect institutions, in fact, uh, try to institutionalize uh, China's foreign policy and domestic policy making uh, system and relied upon experts, uh, policy advisors, and also working with the bureaucrats to um, making um, policy decisions. There, there are two key terms here, I think. One is consensus building. They try very hard to build consensus, try to solicit uh, as many ideas, uh, policy suggestions, uh, and uh, have more policy choices as possible. The second is a collect leadership. Even Deng Xiaoping, I think, he was a strong man like uh, Xi Jinping or Mao Zedong to a certain extent. But on the other hand, uh, he was uh, somehow constrained by some peers like Chen Yun or some other older colleagues, I mean, his, his peers. Uh, uh, Jiang Zemin was uh, constrained by Deng Xiaoping uh, and uh, Hu Jintao 
was to a certain extent by overshadowed by uh, Jiang Zemin. So they were not in the position as uh, uh, Xi Jinping today is without the credible challenges uh, as a strong leader to make decisions uh, top down, totally uh, based upon their own personal preferences and uh, visions. Uh, so connectedship and the consensus building were the characteristics of uh, decision-making prior to uh, Xi Jinping. So in those uh, environments, decision-making in China was somehow like in Washington, it was uh, somehow people talk about pluralistic and decentralized uh, very often through a bargaining um, process. Uh, Deng Xiaoping had uh, a way to make decision what uh, I think Sun Shirk called, I also agree, I use that a lot, uh, delegation by consensus. These leaders sit at the top, I mean, including Jiang Zemin and uh, you know, Hu Jintao sit at the top, uh, making decisions on those uh, strategic issues uh, on the foreign policy front on these major powers, the US, uh, Japan, European uh, countries. But for those routine foreign policy making uh, issues, uh, they dedicated to those bureaucrats and also led them to uh, work with those uh, think tanks uh, at that time, they called zhiku, th those uh, uh, intuitions, uh, and they bargain, they negotiate, and uh, eventually they reach consensus. They just let it go let them to move forward. If they cannot resolve their conflicts, they step in and try to intervene and help uh, to reach either reach consensus or make uh, arbitrary decisions. So those were the um, policy-making process uh, prior to Xi Jinping. And in that context, uh, this decentralization, in fact, uh, Deng Xiaoping started so-called uh, decentralization of decision-making authorities, uh, not those uh, bureaucratic institutions, uh, even localities, uh, local governments to get involved, uh, not only on domestic issues, but also on funny economic and policy-making process. Uh, all these uh, type of uh, consensus building, connected leadership, especially Jiang Zemin and uh, Hu Jintao were the first among equals. And uh, they just focus on uh, their own, and also their division of labor among themselves. Uh, and uh, they try to make decisions uh, at the meetings. And these were from uh, one side is more somehow scientific. In other words, uh, uh, solicit more different views, uh, making decisions more predictable and some very often more rational. But on the other hand, another problem during that process uh, was uh, not efficient, uh, just like Washington very uh, uh, delayed uh, and uh, protracted uh, process on many issues. Uh, and also you see those uh, type of factional fightings, uh, uh, none of this kind of problem during that process. So that created the condition, in fact, uh, for Xi Jinping to re-centralize the decision-making process, eventually consolidate his power as uh, unchallengeable Neither. That's a really helpful way to lay out, you know, previous leaders and some of the, the challenges. Can you now talk about what Xi Jinping has done differently since coming to power? What were the mechanisms or approaches that he used to consolidate power and decision making? 
for Xi Jinping to consolidate his power, many people talk about his uh, strong personality, his vision, his uh, policy preferences, and the leadership style issues. Those are very important. But I also think that the opportunities for him to do to be able to do it, two triggers I in, in the historical context really facilitated his consolidation of power. One trigger is that, as I mentioned earlier, that is the negative effects of decentralization of power during uh, since Deng Xiaoping time, but uh, in particular during Hu Jintao's years of mid uh, 2000s, uh, many people, in fact, uh, among the elites, uh, ruling elites, they raised the, the question about so-called collective leadership, division of power, caused China's so-called governance issues uh, and uh, coordination. People talk about co coordination issues, especially during crisis uh, time. I remember that time many people talk about if China lead ANC, National Security Council, like in the US government to coordinate those uh, uh, intuitions because uh, even, the, for example, in the maritime issues, uh, nine dragons uh, uh, fighting on those issues, uh, really inefficiency, internal uh, fighting, and uh, all those uh, problems created during the so-called consensus building and uh, connective leadership uh, create an environment that a lot of leaders among elites thought the Hu Jintao way of uh, decision making is a problem for China's uh, international status as a big power to get respect in the national arena, to get things done in international arena. Of course, domestic is also similar situation. So that uh, created some kind of uh, political environment of consent for the strong leader to emerge. So Xi Jinping as a strong leader emerged during this period really met that type of uh, sentiments. And I think that the, the elites, a lot of people in Beijing, in the policymaking circles, really thought we got a strong man. We got a right leader who could uh, make uh, things happen. Even they talk about reforms, uh, he could help those reforms which were in stock. The second trigger, I think, very important is the, the corruption issue. I mean, when Xi Jinping came to office there, uh, uh, at that time was a Bo Xilai, Zhang Zhijun. Those are corruption cases uh, just erupted at that time. And among the political elites and also among the society, people were very angry, very anxious about how the government, the new leadership will handle that issue. This uh, issue of so-called corruption was not only at the top, at a very broad societal level. So these uh, corruption cases uh, also created the environment or created a political uh, uh, environment for Xi Jinping to launch so-called anti-corruption campaign to purge those uh, political leaders he did not like. Oh, there was a potential threat to his power. We all know when he came to office two weeks disappearance. Uh, we still, people still speculating what's going on there. But uh, for sure, I think there's something to do with Zhou Yongkang, Lin Jihua people. And uh, so that was a power struggle here. And eventually the way he resolved those uh, power struggle was to basically 
purge those uh, political leaders in the name of uh, corruption. So the corruption environment also helped to trigger his power consolidation. So those are the trigger uh, events, how he cons consolidated his power when in response to the so-called inefficiency, uh, so-called triggered or difficult policy-making process, he proposed a lot of new ideas. I still remember uh, systemic thinking, uh, uh, top-down design, overall plan, complex system engineering. We talked a lot of those uh, new concepts. Uh, those concepts are, in fact, all responded to the one issue, coordination, coordination. The, the, this demand for coordination at the top level was so powerful. So he presented a lot of new ideas. Then in the institutional aspect, he moved quickly to go over, go um, try to circumscribe those uh, uh, bureaucratic institutions by building those uh, very ad hoc, so-called leadership, small uh, groups, uh, uh, strengthen them, uh, those existing ones and build new ones. Uh, in fact, those small leadership groups existed in the past, uh, since Mao Zedong's year, 1958, in my article, I trust those uh, uh, rules. And they, uh, they uh, existed, then abandoned during the Cultural Revolution, and Deng Xiaoping re-established them as what they call a policy consultation and coordination intuitions. Uh, but in fact, those intuitions were, uh, I mean, those organs served as a bargaining forum for those policymakers in a certain sector to bargain. Xi Jinping totally changed these dynamics. Uh, these leadership groups, uh, his executive uh, organs, uh, to get rid of a bureaucratic intervention to make decisions. They are no longer simply a consultation or coordination intuition. They were upgraded as a consultation and also decision-making intuitions. A lot of decisions are made in these organs uh, then submit to the Politburo Standing Committee just for, for formative uh, approval. And uh, he built, I mean, the National Security Commission, then he upgraded the foreign policy making to, uh, leadership group into foreign policy leadership commission. Uh, commission is a more formal, more internalized way than a group. That also uh, shows his intention to make those organs uh, decision-making tuition rather than consultation and the coordination tuitions. So he has to uh, do both uh, with new ideas and also with new institutional design to consolidate his foreign policy making power and also to consolidate his uh, personal authority in this process. I'd like to ask next about two concepts or ideas which you discuss in the paper and which have been commented on frequently by analysts of Xi Jinping's style of governance. The first is top-level design. What is top-level design? How is this different from central planning? What does top-level design do that's different from how previous macro planners in Beijing thought about policy coordination? 
top level design was a new concept proposed by Xi Jinping soon after he came to office. Uh, the, the rationale for the so-called top level design was uh, now the reform has come to the, what they call Sensuichi, the deep water uh, areas, uh, issues become more complicated. In the foreign policy front, uh, China has been rising. As a big power, the foreign policy issues also become more complicated. We could not rely upon those bureaucrats uh, uh, from bottom up to make foreign policy recommendations and decisions. Of course, we'll still listen to those uh, bureaucrats and uh, policy advisors. But more important, there is an overall comprehensive design instead of a touching stone, touch stone crossing the river, fragmented piecemeal type of policy design. We have to have a big policy framework. Uh, especially on those strategic issues. We have to, for example, uh, Xi Jinping from the foreign policy, he has proposed some new concept of a big power diplomacy. As a big power diplomacy, really you have to start from top. To There is an article I read by Chinese scholar. They said as a big power, you should have uh, credibility globally. To build that credibility, you have, uh, have to have uh, uh, credible leadership at the top. People know you can make decisions. Your decision could be implemented. So that's how the, so the concept of uh, uh, top-level design came out. So the concept has come with the institutional design at the policymaking arena as we talked about. He built those uh, uh, new coordination decision-making institutions uh, and uh, strengthened the existing one. And uh, people use the term use those uh, leadership small groups to make decisions uh, at the top. Then the bureaucratic institutions, uh, state council and uh, military and uh, even party organs, they just serve as uh, policy imp implementation institutions. And most they can gather information and also present some policy recommendations. But the most important job now for them is to implement the decisions at the top, especially on those strategic issues uh, in relationship with the major powers. So that's how this uh, so-called top-level design uh, concept has been developed and has been designed. The next concept I wanted to ask about is the comprehensive or holistic national security concept, which emerged in 2013 and, and 2014. I wonder if you could first define what this holistic national security concept is. And then I wonder if you could also explore a bit, why did Xi Jinping create this concept? Why did he need to layer in a somewhat ideological construction or framework to help aid security policymaking? Why weren't the institutions of security policy enough? This concept of holistic security complex uh, in Chinese called Zongti Anquan was proposed when Deng Xiaoping began to reorganize the Chinese security institutions. Uh, in the past, domestic security and external security were uh, handled by separate institutions. And uh, also those uh, traditional security issues and untraditional security issues were also handled by separate institutions. So for Xi Jinping, 
now he came to power, in, there is a lot of insecurity in his mind, uh, especially the security issue for him, most seriously was uh, the connection of domestic enemies, domestic threat uh, connected with external enemies, external threats to stop uh, his regime and his political leadership. So that was a big concern. And also a lot of new issues like cybersecurity, he calls a cultural security, regime security, political security, and a lot of new sec- environmental security, a lot of new security issues emerged. So in order to handle all these uh, threats in an integrated way, he proposed the concept of holistic security. In fact, in the document, which uh, created the National Security Commission, uh, they listed 11 security threats. And among them, for me, the most uh, impressive one was uh, political security. That's another term for regime security. So the regime security came from all directions, internally and externally. So for Xi Jinping, the biggest concern is regime security from security threats from both domestic and external sources. So that's how he developed not only this holistic security concept, but also created a very comprehensive and a very, very powerful intuition called National Security Commission, which has been uh, hidden from the public, and uh, but it has been uh, functioned very powerfully. I talked to people in China, try to figure out what is that functioning and where it is. It's in Zhongnanhai. It's just in the Communist Party compound directly under Xi Jinping's uh, uh, direct. In fact, he's the chairman. The number two person is the vice chairman. Li Keqiang is the number two person. Really, really, for all forces, uh, all the authorities uh, vested in this uh, intuition. And this intuition, in my own research and also this article I talked about, it started with the so-called comprehensive or holistic security concept, try to combine both domestic and external security threats and also traditional and untraditional security threats. But eventually, for Xi Jinping, I think the security threats have come more domestically and with some connections with external forces. So State Security Commission uh, in the last, I think, five years also has shifted his priority from uh, so-called holistic to more domestic uh, oriented. Uh, has on the uh, Xinjiang issue, on the Tibetan issue, which connect to international forces, but more domestic, and also political distance issues uh, and some other issues now that uh, even pandemic, the COVID issues are all threatening to the regime security. So they have, it has focused on all those domestic issues. On the foreign policy front, in that case, uh, they have uh, upgraded foreign affairs leadership small group into the commission. And also they have convened more frequently on the foreign policy, a very high level foreign policy work conference, uh, including peripheral work conference, uh, try to coordinate uh, foreign policy fronts. So holistic security threats uh, has been guiding Xi Jinping's uh, security operation inside of Chinese politics. 
I wanted to ask you, Sui-Chung, if let's take an issue like the war in Ukraine and China's thinking about its relationship with Russia and how it positions itself on the war in Ukraine. Do we have any sense of how these various parts fit together? Where might we see the real locus or center of decision-making on, for example, China's response to the war in Ukraine? Obviously, the foreign ministry is in there somewhere, but it's not too central. Some have told me that they think the National Security Commission is playing a, an important role in thinking about China's relationship with Russia and the war in Ukraine. Do you have any sense on how these pieces fit together right now for a, a really important issue for China, which is navigating Russia's invasion of Ukraine? All these institutions are important, but Xi Jinping's ears now is a one-man leadership. I think all those ideas, uh, all the decisions are from one person, uh, from Xi Jinping himself. All those institutions, National Security Council, Foreign Affairs uh, Commission, uh, Central Military Commission, not mention foreign ministry, which is to, to know at that arena. They all try to find out what is in Xi's mind. Then they elaborate and uh, make policy recommendations uh, to reinforce Xi's uh, personal preferences, personal um, policy uh, ideas, uh, visions. I think that's the policy-making process in today China, just like Putin in Russia. His uh, Ukraine war decision is uh, so miscalculated. There are so many problems uh, now we look back uh, in the policy-making process uh, because he did not listen to others. This is a similar, very similar situation in China today. Another thing I want to emphasize, his leadership style is he's a Michael manager. He intervenes on any issue, large or small, he cares. So in this case, Ukraine war relationship with Russia is pretty much his own personal arena. He just pretended to be confident in his own knowledge on those issues, make his mind then put those around him, including those uh, uh, intuitions, what he wanted. Then they make policy decisions uh, for him to approval. I think that's the policy-making process in China. It's very dangerous, very, very dangerous in the, in the process. Maybe we could just explore that a bit further as we look to wrap up the discussion. I'm curious if you can think out loud about the type of decisions we're likely to see coming out of Xi Jinping or the Xi Jinping administration on foreign policy over the next couple of years. We'll have the 20th Party Congress this fall. Xi Jinping will take a third term as general secretary, which will only further ensconce him within the political system. You were just explaining some of the dangers of this more autocratic, one-man style of, of foreign policy making. What other dangers do you see or what other dynamics do you see coming out of this system? If there is frustration with Xi Jinping's foreign policy decision-making, are there any avenues where you expect or where there's the possibility of pushback emerging? Or is his control over foreign policy so significant that even if there is frustration at, for example, China's position on Russia, there's really nowhere for this dissent to be raised? How, how do you see this? 
Xi Jinping, I think he is a psyche I see in the two aspects. On the one hand, he is overconfident in his own ability, leadership, and uh, China's uh, power, and uh, what uh, he could do. That's one side of his psyche, because he so have been so successful in consolidating his power. And China, for quite a while, even during early periods of the COVID, has been done really well. On the other hand, he is deeply, deeply insecure. Insecurity, I think, is a deeply, deep-held psyche in Xi Jinping's current mind. It's just like Mao Zedong. Uh, if Mao retired in 1957, he was a great leader. China would move to the right, I would not the right direction, smoothly taught the direction they wanted. When he made that mistake, so-called the Henry Flower campaign, then he became insecure. He began to purge those intellectuals who criticized him. Then gradually forward, another big mistake, Peng Dehui criticized him. He purged Peng Dehui, then became even more insecure and defensive, eventually launched the Cultural Revolution, brought China into the disaster. This is a similar situation for Xi Jinping today. He's making one after another mistakes, economically, and politically, and the foreign policy front. And the, the current uh, blockdown of Shanghai and all these uh, cities which damage Chinese economy cause such huge discontent among the Chinese society, Chinese people, and also his policy on Russia, I mean, Ukraine, all those policies also cause not, I would say, at least controversies among leadership. And also his economic policy in the last several years tried to emphasize so called common prosperity at expenses of market efficiency. Uh, all those uh, and this, uh, kind of uh, brought down those uh, big tech financial institutions uh, really put him in a very vulnerable situation. That's why he is so insecure before the 20s Congress. That's why even I found so strange. So, ridiculous that uh, he wants the people from Guangxi province uh, to tell the whole country how great leader he was. Uh, and uh, he did those kind of uh, uh, support. So insecurity combined with um, misplaced confidence really put Xi Jinping in a very dangerous position for China today. As you uh, question, your question mentioned in this case, uh, he is so powerful and also insecure, so vulnerable. In this case, he could make ridiculous decisions, uh, for example, on the Taiwan issue. I am a little bit uh, concerned on this issue. So I don't think China is ready or is able to take Taiwan by force. But uh, his calculation may be different from others. Uh, we don't know. We don't know. And nobody can tell him or is in a position to tell him the truth. In China today, I lived in China for so many years. Even during the Cultural Revolution, I think it has not been like today. Nobody dares at all levels, from very top level to mid-level to society level, can tell truth on any issues publicly. Even privately, people are not there to tell truth. So this is a very dangerous situation for China in next years also. Uh, China could itself uh, plunge into political economic disasters domestically, that kind of domestic disasters could also 
caused leaders like Xi Jinping himself to divert those problems internationally and cause uh, some kind of adventures, uh, which uh, just like Putin did to Ukraine, ridiculous, mischaracterized. But we don't know. Uh, from his perspective, it's rational. We have a different rationalities in this case. A dictator from uh, other rational people uh, in other, other parts of the world. So I'm very concerned. This is the, what's going on in China. Yeah, thank you for that, Sui Sheng. I think that was really well and powerfully put, depressing as well to think about because I agree that the recent events in Ukraine and seeing Putin make a pretty disastrous decision when I think a lot of the signs were there that Russia would pay a price if it invaded Ukraine, that convinced many people before the invasion that Putin would not take those actions. And yet Putin went ahead with the invasion. And thinking about Taiwan, I have for a while said, there's no way Xi Jinping is going to invade because it would be disastrous for China. But you know, reading your paper and just hearing you now, it does make me realize that we need to be careful that we're not substituting our own rational decision-making model for Xi Jinping's. And we don't know, as you say, what information is making it to his desk, how he is thinking about risk calculations, the possibility that he makes a disastrous blunder. All those are very real, real possibilities, and, and especially in the wake of Ukraine, things to take seriously. But not to end it on that very depressing note, but- we'll- I have never been so pessimistic. <laughs> yeah about yeah. China today. I mean, this COVID, I would say, is a big, big disaster for China. In the past, I thought Xi Jinping was a power hunger and political ideologues. I never thought he was so stupid. <laughs> He's so stupid on this COVID decision-making process today. So stupid. He is damaging himself. Yeah. It's a derail China's rise. Yeah. We're already seeing this bifurcation between what's good for Xi Jinping and what's good for China. Right, exactly. And I think it's going to get worse, and I agree. Deeply insecurity and uh, afraid of the criticism. As yeah. Anyone, criticism, do not take. Sui Xiong, this is a great conversation, and uh, I hope that we can continue the discussion, especially as we move into the 20th Party Congress period and, and beyond. The system in China is becoming very opaque, and you are one of the few individuals who's got the experience, wisdom, and skill to navigate how Beijing is, is thinking and acting. So I have always appreciated your scholarship and research and wisdom Thank on you. these matters. And so, you have done so wonderful job. In fact, that in my class uh, next two weeks, they will read your scenarios of the succession to Xi Jinping. I have to give uh, most of the credit there to Richard McGregor. But I'll take some of the credit. That's a really good article. I really like what you have uh, published, all those articles. I always uh, follow what you have written. (laughs) I appreciate it. But I can say very conclusively, and with all honesty, I have absolutely no idea what's going on in Beijing right now. But anyway, Sui Sheng, thank you so much. And and, uh, just a reminder for folks who have already forgotten the reference, I recommend people go out and go to the Journal of Contemporary China. This article is open, so anyone can download the PDF, Top-Level Design and Enlarged Diplomacy, Foreign and Security Policymaking in Xi Jinping's China. It's an absolutely excellent, essential overview of, in many ways, how, how we got to now and how Xi Jinping was able 
to position himself as this leader. So Swayshong, thank you so much for your scholarship and, and thank you very much for your time today. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 